What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album in the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and today we have an extra special episode. Typically, we go through the chronological canon of Roadrunner Records, where we are currently deep in 1995, but today, we go back to the future and celebrate the 20th anniversary of one of my favorite RR releases of all time, Spineshank's The Height of Callousness. I remember in the year 2000, I logged onto the World Wide Web at roadrun.com, Road Run, not even Road Runner. Maybe Time Warner owned them, but... Anyway, I entered a contest to win a call from Spineshank. I just had to tell them what the definition of the height of callousness meant to me. Well, what it means is waiting 20 years to get my prize because they never called. But today, I'm getting rewarded in spades, and I'm passing it on to you because we're going to reminisce about this classic with Tommy and Johnny from the band. But first, I introduce to you a legend, G-G-Garth Richardson. He produced Kitty, The Urge. Mudvayne, and Rage Against the Machine before taking the reins on Spineshank's sophomore album. He's also a neighbor of former Meepster Reese Fulber up in Vancouver, Canada. G3 took the time to tell me about what it was like steering this ship from running on diesel to a little elbow boots. Wow, that's a long time ago, right? 20 fucking years ago. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, when is the last time you even thought about the height of callousness? Or do you You think about it every day? (laughs) <laughs> you know what there's some good stories <laughs> i'm not gonna lie <laughs> you know you know i mean i, I had a blast making making those records because uh they were all great guys uh uh if you talk to johnny he probably doesn't say my my name fondly only only because i had to push him and i had to push him hard to get what i had to get out of him right because he was lazy but um, but you know what? A kind soul, though, a, a very kind soul. You had to get him, get him out to get angry, and sing, right? The song I think that got nominated for, for his Grammy, I think, was the one that I beat him up on. Like, 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 like I, you know, asked him how his, you know, sister was. What was she hot? How about his mother? Was she hot too? And fuck off, man! Fuck off! It. Come, come on, Johnny, man. You know, she hot. You think I could date her? Fucking off the side bag, dude. Come on, you know, you know what, dude? You know, fucking sing, asshole. Just sing. <laughs> and he got angry at me. He got so fucking angry at me. But he was he was singing from anger, and that's what that record had to be, right? Because if you had someone came up with like, 
you know, singing those songs nicely, you had an impact, right? You had to be real. So I pushed them and pushed them and pushed them and pushed them, right? So, so I do think of that record always. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting that you bring up that relationship specifically yeah. because yes. to me, you know, Strictly Diesel comes out before I had a callousness and yeah. Johnny's vocals from that album to I had a callousness are, you know, night and day. And I've heard exactly. you say in interviews before, you know, if a singer isn't a star, then the album isn't going to be sick, but he is front and center yes, yes. on that, on that record for sure. Yeah. 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 He is. He is. Uh, uh, there was one point to where uh, we were taking off a weekend and uh, me and the engineer and my editor were going to go to Las Vegas. So we actually split. We're going to be singing the first song on Monday. And I said, okay, Johnny, go home this weekend, learn the song, get ready to sing the song. He says, yeah, man, I got my daughter this weekend. I said, you know, because me, you know what, that comes first. Family always comes first. So I said, hey, you know, dude, that's great. You have her help you with the song, get her involved, be that parent. And then he went off and I went off to Vegas and I had a great time. We, you know, you know, lost, lost like a lot of money, but that's okay. So <laughs> we came back. Someone said, yeah, Johnny didn't do anything. He was at the rainbow and he was doing, you know, blow and he was, fun, you know, you know, we're actually fucking chicks. And I said, hey, Johnny, how did it go with the song this week, you know, like weekend? Oh, man, I do. I didn't have time. So I called like a whole meeting. And I had the label and I had the management and I had the band and I had my engineering staff in the room. And I said, you know, guys, I think we have to get a new fucking singer because he, clearly he has no time. He has no time to work on his record. And he fucking, and he started talking and I slammed on fist and said, shut the fuck up. I said, said, you need to fucking start towing me away because he came up to me actually prior to the record and said, this, this really means something to me. And I said, great. So, let's you know let's do it hard let's let's be great at this right so so it kind of you know it was sad but you had to push him because he is a star right he's that kind of that extra star, star quality right well yeah i did not realize you had this uh ross robinson making grown men cry uh, approach to yeah but you, you know what uh 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 well, yeah, yeah, you know, true point. It was only him. I've only ever had to do that to him because of the record he wanted to make. He had to be angry. It had to be intense, right? He had to be real. From coming in and being very kind, kind and nonchalant about it, then why, right? Because he is the extra piece of that band. His vocals on that record are what make that record so just like monstrous. You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. It's start to finish, like you said, intense. I mean, the music, of course, is a, is a great soundtrack to him just screaming his head off. And even the singing sounds, you know, like less lethargic as it did on Strictly yeah. Diesel. It has its its correct places. It's not singing just for the sake of singing. It almost gives yeah. you that dynamic yeah. that when he does scream, it's even scarier because you've heard him kind of sing. So in you, this, you hear this really nice lot and all of a sudden you get punched. Right? Right, it's like, right. what the fuck was that? Yeah, yeah. I get that. So how did you even come to be the producer of this record? Because you didn't do Strictly Diesel. So did you get demos from them? And you were like, oh, I want to be a part of this. Yeah, we did met they... them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually met, uh, met the guys. And then uh, we, you know, we all went, yeah, this is right. Right. So got into the room together. And it, it was fun. You know? You, know, you know, the great thing is well, we had a blast. Like me, Tommy, Ike, and Rob. But a blast. Johnny kept on the outside because... He's kind of that, that actual lone lone wolf guy, 
you know, but he, he's a star. Was this the first time that you had integrated things like electronics into a production? Um, yes, I think so. That's yeah. what I was thinking about that you did the Urge Master of Styles where it has all yeah. these like horns. And I assume that was kind yeah. of a weird new addition for your repertoire. So well, I, I did the Voodoo Glow Skulls. Oh, okay. Which was all horns, like, like ska, fucking hardcore ska, right? And the hard parts. So I come from like a background, my family, my, my dad used to produce records. So I've always seen him do horns and strings and orchestras and all kinds of stuff. So I can't make a band sound like another band and of course each band has their own sound right so 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 who want to come in and go that is wrong i'm going to do this do that so it's like you, you take what you have and you make it better okay well yeah so i didn't realize that you had done voodoo glow skulls before that because that's what i was thinking of the first kind of like parallel of that was with the urge you know doing the horns and then electronics you know they're just kind of weird elements you're bringing in and i feel like yeah. the the kitty record the at least the first one had some weird electronic stuff a little bit but not as heavily as you know spine shank would for sure yeah, 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 yeah. The one thing about the Kitty record is we did the uh, we did that record in actually seven days. <laughs> oh, the whole thing, spit, start to finish. Spit was uh, recorded in in actually seven days, and then mixed in five. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it, it was it, it was like hi, pleasure to meet you. Go away, and then we just worked probably twenty hours a day. Yeah, yeah. So it was a blur. I was gonna say. So I, I mean, still doing it that quickly is is yeah. intense, but I didn't realize that you were doing it all day long. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of like when we did Down the Sun record too, which you, you know, talk about. Those were, you know, you know, from probably 10 in the morning until three in the morning. The time goes by so fast, you know, you know like you look at your clock and you go, oh shit, it's, it's time to go home. You know, because it's a love, right? Tommy was a dry, funny, Mikey was the one that kind of hicked on Tommy, right? So, so there's a real, there's a real, you know, you got to put it in your style. There's a real John Lennon, Paul McCartney vibe happening there. And did you and Tommy collaborate a lot on making this? Because it seems like he's kind of like a de facto producer a little bit too, right? It was kind of, a, you know, like between me, Tommy, and and my, Mikey, who were the three guys there, were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. My job is to keep them in line and to make it go move actually forward, not not backwards. With a band like Spine Shank, <clears throat> where you're just compressing the guitars down so intensely, where it's kind of just this wall of noise with still maintaining, you know, chord structure and things like that. Is there is that like a delicate balancing act of kind of making sure you don't go too far with it? Well, we basically would run probably four cabinets and four heads at the same time, and every single like, guitar chord on the record was punched in. Tune. so that we spent a lot of diligence on 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 it was playing a g e b that every chord was tuned and then punched in and 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 punched in because when you're doing kind of that electronica type thing because you have so many things that are perfectly in tune that if they weren't in tune the guitars then you're going to get that wideness to it it's going to sound a little bit kind of phasey Right, so we would we would spend hours and days and days and days and days. So we were thinking about every single you know note, chord, riff, and you know why. Is that a technique you'd used before? Or was that something? New yes, or... yeah, 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 yeah. My dad uh, taught taught me uh, about tuning. He kind of ruined people because of it. Because I can't be in the room when they're tuning. 
because he makes me crazy. <laughs> so, so he's like, I go, guys, this is what you have to do. I'll be in the lounge. You know, when it's done, he'll come back in the room and go, okay, that's out of tune, that's out of tune, and that's out of tune. So go and fix that chord, that chord, and that chord, please. Yeah, yeah. So, so we spent spent a lot of tedious days just going chord by chord, bar by bar. Yeah, yeah that sounds very like just meticulous and maddening. But I mean, it, yeah, you yeah. get that wall of sound, so the end result, I guess, is worth it. But I don't know if yeah. I can handle. That. <laughs> you know what? Many people have actually broken down and just, I can't take it anymore. I'm like, guys, it sounds good, it sounds fucking amazing, but it's hard work. And I go, everything is hard work if you want it to be great. So, so Mikey first began to, I think he was like, holy fuck. And then after he heard it, he, he was like, okay, I get it. But we had to bring, bring the band up here to my house because we were just kind of running low. And we had to get, get the band out of LA because of, you know, them going off and partying and the rainbow and all that stuff. And we were up here, myself and, and actually Mikey and, and Tommy would pick on Johnny. And then uh, 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 we were doing something and, and Johnny went, Jesus Christ, the engineer at the time, Ben Kaplan said, I'm sorry, Johnny, he can't help you right now. You're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, because it, it was just, uh, well, we just had fun doing it, right? Uh, I can't recall all, all the crazy stories because that was a long time ago. Is there something that you would have done differently with this record when you look back on it, when you listen to it? I feel like someone like you is probably a perfectionist and every time you probably hear any project, there's probably small changes you would have made. Anything that sticks out with Ida Callousness? Yeah, I could have done a little bit more with Johnny still. Actually now, like when we went back and because uh, Tommy posted the record was 20 years old, I went, fuck, 20 years? So like I went, like, let's do it again. There's some... Timing things on his vocals, go back now and hear it. I gotta go. Oh, I could have pulled it back a little bit in time, you know. But there's always something. It's like every every single record I do, I go back and go. Oh, okay, if I only had it done that, you know, better, or, or or that went by me, right? But but you're in the you're in the heat of it, so at the time it felt good. Plus plus all all of our hearing skills have have gotten better because records now are so slick. That, that, that if it's not just like you're kind of going oh that, that that sounds weird right yeah i think that's a cool thing about higher callousness especially on some of the uh, especially especially what's the right word especially especially, especially. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, some of the <laughs> they can't talk yes <laughs> <laughs> all right some of the later songs have that more organic feel and so much so that you can hear the imperfections and the flaws and yeah. i think that makes it sound like a real band versus you know a lot of the songs and a lot of the parts is just this wall of sound it sounds very digital and precise you know with the vocal effects yeah. and all this yeah. but there are things on there where you can hear a, a little off time like you mentioned with johnny's vocals yeah. Or you can... yeah you want it to be because you're using both you want to be able to have bigger dynamics so that when this, something happens it isn't like this it's like this right so <laughs> we spent spent lots of times making sure that when something happened it happened for like, you know, you know, like to, be, to become a kind of a statement, I guess, right? Did you have any sort of direct relationship with Roadrunners? Is it because you worked on, you know, a handful of these records? Well, I did, uh, I did, I did the first Nickelback record. I mixed it. 
Right. So that was the first thing that I did for Roadrunner. I knew Dave Rath. He's a great guy. And Mike Gitter. Mamana Connor is also a great, uh, a actual fantastic music guy. Right. So, so, so they did, they, they were kind of the cool people to be on because they understood, they understood music. They loved, loved that first. I could have some leeway with those guys. Right. Right. It wasn't always about having a, you know, like a hit, hit single. I wanted to have, you know, like a class body of work. Right. And I think that's what Haida Callousness is specifically. You know, there's, there's of course, the, the singles that did pretty well on there. And like you mentioned, the Grammy nomination, but it's like a, an album that you really want to put on start to finish and just feel like that semi truck is blasting over you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, you can always tell it's a good record that when you're in a car, on the highway and then you're listening to music <laughs> look down at your speed speed odometer <laughs> and you're like going 90 and you're like, you're like yeah, because it, it gives you that kind of feeling right one more thing with johnny's vocals though <laughs> i noticed that there's like a ton of uh of doubling on the yep. Yep. so are you copying and pasting those or is he going in and recording a, a ton of doubles? no you get the first track and then you double it and then we double it again and, you know, you, you know what? and that's hard that's a lot, a lot of work too, right? Because, but back then, that that was just when we were getting into Pro Tools, right? So, right. so we're all like going, "What is this new box?" You know, you know <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, well, 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 you know what? I did the Rage record, and that was that was the last record pre Pro Tools, where in the old days, if you had to fix something, you have to copy it over to, from a tape copy to another machine, cut it out, and then you edit it in physically. You know, like we used to have the guy that we'd pay $1,000 a day to come in and do it for us. Because we were like, we can't. This is way too weird. This is strange shit, right? So, so, but now it's like, it's kind of the norm, right? When you guys are making this, you know, it's got a very, especially compared to Strictly Diesel, it has a very... uh modern for that time new metal sound even like you know the guitar riffs when it's not doing yeah. those compressed walls of all the notes you're talking about tuning it's got those single yeah. note riffs and things like mm-hmm. that is that something that you're consciously including or it's something oh yes you're... everything everything is planned because every everything has to have a place and a spot and everything has to happen for a reason uh uh uh, I hate when you put on someone's record and there's so many things going on that there's no focal point, there's no focus, right? So we spend, we spend like a lot of time making sure Tommy's playing on the right drum fill, maybe making sure that it's the right beat or if there's, or if you shouldn't be playing a beat or if you, should, you know, every single part was that you talked about, placed, made sure that it was in its right right spot are they ever talking about with you how they're going to reproduce some of these things live because there's so many crazy electronics funny story i did a band called a chevelle which is a new metal record and every time that we would talk about something about okay let's let's do this overdub and they go well how are we gonna do that live and i go guys i'm i'm not here to do your live show (laughs) <laughs> and then they would do the next part and I go okay we need to do this well, well how we did it live and I finally got a big sign 
and it was huge. He wrote on it, fuck live. And every time he said something, I would just point to the actual speakers, like the sign, and say, look it, my job is not to help you with your live show. If you don't do this right record, guys won't have to even you even have to deal with your live show because <laughs> nobody is going to be there. So you kind of have to go into these records not worrying about their live show. Well, I guess the last question I would have for you then is what are you most proud of that you feel like you accomplished with Height of Callousness? Uh, that, that nobody died. <laughs> <laughs> Too cool. Hopefully there's not any hockey playoffs when we get to Down the Sun's album and can have Garth back because that guy rocks. That's how he felt about making this album, but how did Spineshank feel about it? Tommy Decker, the drummer and mad genius who co-produced it, lets us in on what was going on with the band as they entered that igloo to lay down these tracks. He also reveals a sample on synthetic I never knew about. But you can skip the sample and go right into the whole entree of my conversation with Tommy Shanks right now. Yeah, I can't, can you believe 20 years? Man? And October 10th was when it came out. So that's crazy to me. I actually can't believe it. I mean, I know it's probably crazy for you too because you're the one that made it and toured it and everything. But, you know, I remember going and buy. Actually, what I vividly remember is going on roadrun.com and entering a contest in which I had to define what the height of callousness <laughs> meant to me. And I was supposed to win a phone call from Spineshank, which I won but never received. So this is actually just a 20-year delay in my contest entry victory. So Height of Callousness, would you say that's the definitive work of Spineshank in between the, the four albums that you've done? That's the one that people know most vividly? I mean, I think that's the one that sold the most. And it's really weird the way that album happened because... When we were on tour with, uh, for Strictly Diesel, we were on tour with Sepultura and Biohazard. Or no, no, I'm sorry. We were on tour with System of a Down and Fear Factory. And somebody stole the truck with all three bands' equipment in it. So we had to, um, we had to borrow money from our merch company, Blue Grape at the time, and uh, like just to, to buy new instruments so we could continue the tour. And that cost so much money that Roadrunner was like, well, we don't know if we're going to continue on with Spineshank. So we had like one shot to like make that record and, and it really turned things around. So it was like, it was kind of like we barely made it with the, you know, by the skin of our teeth. So did you know going into it when you were making the record that they were already considering kind of cutting their losses with you? Yeah, we knew. I mean, Monty, I mean, Kevin, you mentioned Kevin earlier and Kevin was always like, he's still to this day, one of my best friends in the world. He was always very open with us. So he, he let us know. And I think Monty had a soft spot for us. So they were, they were giving us money and like they were paying for our studio and they bought us like a, a little, it was a, v, a Roland 1660, I believe, like a 16 track recorder. And it was just like, it was do or die. So me and Mike were in the studio maybe 12 hours every day. Just, we had nothing to lose. So like we just did what we wanted to do because we figured this might not even come out. So we just, we did what we did and luckily they seemed to love it. Because I would say the the leap between Strictly Diesel to Hide of Callousness is is vast. I mean, they Strictly Diesel comes out in '98, Hide of Callousness comes out in 2000. So I assume you wrote and recorded Hide of Callousness in early 2000, late '99. Is that fair to say? I mean, Strictly Diesel was our first time ever being in a real recording studio, so it was like trial by fire. We didn't know what was going on. 
we didn't, you know, we had no idea that, that this is how it worked. And also we just signed with Roadrunner Records. We thought we were going to be huge rock stars right away. And yeah, we had corn in the studio next door. Like sometimes we'd come into the recording room and Jonathan Davis is in there eating Del Taco. And I was like, what the fucking Jonathan Davis right there. So it was, it was pretty crazy. So Hyde Callousness, we, we had a little more of an idea of like what really went into making a record. So, you know, and, and like I said, we, we had nothing to lose. So it was just really like do whatever we want and, and take it to the extreme. Strictly Diesel is produced by uh, Amir from Orgy has a hand in it, as well as Josh Abraham and Height of Callousness. You kind of have more personally, you have more like a hands on role with the production. Is that because you had learned all these things from doing Strictly Diesel that you wanted to kind of incorporate those new tactics? Yeah. And it was just like, Strictly, Strictly Diesel was just, I mean, we wrote that whole record. I mean, we got signed off of one song, which was Detached. And then we just, it was, a lot of that was me and Johnny. We just locked up in a room and we wrote the whole record in about a month. So Hide uh, of Callousness was like very, very personal and we had a lot to prove. And like I said, we, we thought it was never going to see the light of day. So we just did whatever we could. So as far as the production, we knew exactly what we wanted. We knew the sounds we wanted. And then getting Garth on board was like a, a dream come true just because, you know, he had done the Rage record and and he worked really well with us and he pushed us to new levels. But yeah, it was like, it was something that, you know, Mike and I especially were really uh, like invested in that record. Yeah, Garth, of course, legendary producer, good, good Garth. And he does the Rage record. He does the Urge not long before you guys. Think Kitty, maybe yeah. right before you. But nothing that's quite ha- having these like industrial aspects that you guys have. So was that interesting for him? Was that something he was kind of learning as he went along with incorporating those aspects? I mean, I don't think you could really uh, throw any surprises towards Garth. I mean, I think he kind of had seen it all. We had a guy named Fu who had worked with Orgy. And he came in and helped with some of the... the electronics and the programming and uh he was also in what, what band was he in with ryan and, and amir dead by sunrise mm, yeah yeah with uh chester i believe yeah um but yeah he helped out a lot and it, i think garth right before us he had done the mudvayne record so he oh, okay. was on a he was on a pretty good streak at that point yeah he did kitty then mudvayne then us and then he also did self-destructive pattern which was right after uh Calisness. when you're Getting these songs together, can you feel that they're better constructed? Song, are you focused more on song construction and song structure than you were? I know you mentioned that Strictly Diesel, you kind of rushed through, I guess, writing. But the actual way these songs on Hide a Callousness are put together are kind of their strength because they have almost like a pop song structure quality to them. But of course, they're heavy as hell and just sound <laughs> really pissed off. So is that something that you really right. hunkered down to focus on with this? Yeah, I mean, it really was. And, and, you know, we had done some touring at that point. So, you know, we were, we toured with, you know, System of a Down, Fear Factory, Sepultura. So some like heavy hitters. And it it really like broadens your horizons and like kind of lets you know, like, like I said, when Strictly Diesel came out, we were like, that's it. We, we're going to sell a million. It's, it's, you know, it's happening. And we were just like so green and so stupid. But, uh, you know, when you got out there in the real world and like, with these real bands like Sepultura you know legends and you know we learned a lot from these guys and, and Fear Factory Dino in particular showed us uh, you know a lot of the ropes and so we knew that there was like 
a higher level we had to achieve for it. And we just, you know, we really tried. We, we put out what we thought was, you know, I think the best we could have done at the time. And, and like I said, there was, it was, there was no, we hadn't had any radio success at the time. We hadn't, you know, we just had done maybe three, four months of touring and, and that was all we knew. So, you know, when we did callousness, it was like, we, we had seen like what people respond to like live, live wise and, and, you know, during the shows. So we knew what we wanted to do and we, we definitely wanted to get heavier. You mentioned Dino, of course, Burton is on Strictly Diesel and Fear Factory are also at that point, even in 98, you know, Obsolete's coming out there well in deep into their industrial version of the band and uh, also on Roadrunner Records. Did you feel like when you were doing Height of Callousness that you needed to get out of their shadow because you kind of had a lot of comparisons with them in the early days? Well, it's funny because, I mean, we were in their shadow and everyone said we sounded like Fear Factory, but we sounded nothing like Fear Factory, you know? Like they have all these syncopated riffs and the double kick with the, the guitars doing the same thing. And we, we had nothing like that. We were, I, I think at the time we were more coming from like, like the metal background we had, which was like Sepultura and Pantera and, you know, Biohazard and, and these type of things. But then at, we also, you know, there were new bands like Deftones and Korn and Tool and, you know, they had these dynamics. So we were trying to just mix those where, you know, Johnny, Johnny could actually sing. So it was like, let's do, you know, the heavy parts seemed to be more heavy if they were like sandwiched in between a catchy chorus or some type of breakdown or something. So that was our, our thing. It was, it was more dynamics than anything because I don't think we could have did like a blow for blow with some of these bands that were like so super heavy. It, it was so we just kind of more worked with dynamics. Fear Factory, kind of like a thing that they seem to focus on. And even when I talked to Dino about making D manufacture, his thing was like, you know, they wanted to emulate a machine and have perfection. You know, the rhythms had to be perfectly tight and everything like that. Like they wanted to emulate not being an organic band, even though they were, versus Height of Callousness sounds like it could fall apart at any second. You know, it's very chaotic while still being tight and the song structures yeah. are there, like I mentioned, but it, it has that element of uncertainty, like especially on something like Seamless, which has a lot less electronics, even with your drums, you know, it almost sounds like the song is barely staying together, which makes it sound a little bit more dangerous yeah. and impactful. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, cause we were, I, I think at the time, like I said, we were all pretty young and we were kind of playing at the best of our ability and like kind of pushing the boundaries, at least as far as we were concerned, because, and it was, it was a very real record. I, I think that's the thing that, that sets it apart that, you know, even 20 years later, it's still, like I listened to it not that long ago and uh, like you could feel it. It was, it was very real and it was, a, it was like four guys that kind of came from nowhere and uh, like our dreams kind of came true and then they were about to be taken from us. So it was like, let's put everything we have into this record. And, and like Seamless specifically, Johnny wrote the lyrics on that one because it was me and him that wrote lyrics on, on that entire record. And you could feel it. Like it, it was a real song. Like he, he breaks down, you know, during like the, uh, the mid part of that song. And it's just, the whole record was, it was just, we put everything into it. The vocal specifically sounds so almost desperate like they're just so angry and and i guess it kind of makes sense what you're talking about as far as you guys kind of felt like you were against the ropes and that's what this record sounds like i mean even the 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 title of the record and the title track just sounds it's it's 
borderline terrifying at the time, uh, at certain times, because you have the doubled up vocals as well. I mean, just <laughs> the screaming on there is like blood curdling. You know what I mean? He's he's pissed. And his singing is so much better on this than on Strictly Diesel as well. Yeah. This, the screaming is a similar sound where he just sounds way more. I mean, I think that another band and another vocalist saying lyrics that might sound a little passe, especially in the early 2000s, like a fuck integrity or something like that might sound a little corny. But when he's saying yeah. it, you like believe it. He's like, he's legitimately uh, not concerned with anything but making it on the other side. So I think that that's a, a big aspect of what makes this album work. Well, you know, it's funny that the whole fuck integrity thing, it's kind of, uh, it's been like a curse because the actual, I wrote the lyrics for that. And the actual lyric was fuck our integrity because it was about, you know, people saying that, oh, you guys sold out because they're, you know, we had songs like New Disease or, or Synthetic and they were a little more radio friendly. So it was all about fuck your integrity. We're just going to do what we want. But like sound wise, fuck integrity works for the part. So it just became that. But uh, as far as that record goes, I mean, we really were against the ropes because when we got Garth, he wanted to record in, in Vancouver. And we had never, like, we had done a bunch of touring, and every time, none of us were a bunch of maniacs, so none of us could get into Canada. Rob was the only guy that was allowed into Canada. <laughs> so every time we did a tour, we would we would stay at some shitty hotel at, at the border. And uh, so Roadrunner specifically, like, no, you know, like, they made no bones about it that if you guys get into Vancouver, we'll make this record. If you don't get into Vancouver, then you guys are dropped. So, I mean, we really were against the ropes. And luckily, that was the first time we were ever allowed in Canada. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess. What is this cover supposed to be with this statue? You know, it was weird. We did, uh, the guy that did that, and I actually saw something the other day where the guy that did it, I can't remember his name. Uh, his name is P.R. Brown. He also did Antichrist Superstar and some other Roadrunner album covers. If you look at the, the used record, it's very similar. And he did that one, too. And then there's a Finch and a Glassjaw record that are pretty similar too. Um, it was just like he had stuff. He had a studio and he had a bunch of weird things hanging around, and and we just we didn't really have an idea for the cover. Cover's always been hard for us to figure out. And uh, he he had a couple things that just kind of caught our eye, and, and that one just kind of struck a nerve. So I mean, there's really no story behind it. You mentioned uh, kind of being accused of, um, I guess selling out quote unquote for having the the poppier songs when you first release a single off of it you do synthetic but new disease seems like it's kind of more obviously the 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 more accessible song so was that the plan all along to do synthetic and then do new disease or you didn't know that you were even going to get a second single we had no idea we, we had no idea we were getting a first single because on diesel like detach got some type of aid release where johnny had to go back in and and like sissify some of the vocals instead of Rob scream. Johnny went in and sang detached. And it was, I think it was just too little, too late. And, but, uh, you know, the, the writing was already on the wall. We, all our gear had been stolen. And I think it was like a last, last ditch effort to, to breathe a little bit of more life into that record, which that record still did pretty well. I mean, it sold, I think 160,000 copies at the time, you know, we did, we didn't tour very much. I mean, we got great tours, but, you know it so we were just you know we were still reeling from the whole like if you don't get into canada you're not making a record uh, you know we 
we're not sure as are even a priority. So we didn't, we didn't think we were ever going to get a, a single, a video or anything. And then, you know, next thing you know, synthetic was on. Remember MTV2? Yeah, but there was a commercial that like, I still, I wish I had a, uh, recorded it or a copy of it, but it was like the future of music. And it was, it was at the drive-in, Coldplay and uh, Spineshank. And uh, that was a commercial they played constantly. So it was great. And you know, I think Coldplay did a little bit better. The uh, song Cyanide 2600 is kind of focused around this same drum sample that's kind of from the beginning to the end of the song. Was that something that you guys wanted to do where it was just like almost a remix? Right. It almost sounds like a remix of a song, but it's actually just a regular album track. It was definitely, we, me and Mike were listening to a lot of uh, Atari Teenage Riot. That's exactly what I thought it sounded like. That's so cool. Just chaos, and that's what we wanted. And we actually played live for a long time. And contrary to what people might believe, I never played, we never played the tape. All the samples were all triggered. Like, I triggered them all. There was no click track. There was no tape. But, yeah, that song, it was the very last song we did. I wrote the lyrics. Me and Rob wrote the lyrics, and then Johnny came up with a couple lines. We wrote it the night before, and it was the last song we did. We had the programming all done, and... Garth was like, okay, you guys have one shot. You have one day to do it. It was the last day of the studio. And it was like, you give it a shot. And it, it came out great. So it was definitely a different song for that record. But I mean, we like I said, we wanted to take everything to the extreme. And it was, you know, it was pretty punk rock and, and chaotic. So we loved it. I still love that song. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought it sounded like. So I'm, uh, that's cool to hear that that was kind of the influence. I think back then people used to call that hardcore, but you know, it was like hardcore breakbeat kind of stuff yeah oh yeah 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 so you mentioned that that's the last song you wrote for the record what was the first song that you wrote for this batch of songs where you were like okay we're we're doing this we're definitely going in the right direction um it might have been asthmatic or synthetic it was one of the two we actually had a mirror from orgy like he had done the first record so uh roadrunner we hired him to like come in and just like be like a like another ear, you know, someone from the outside. And Asthmatic had this really, really stupid chorus in the beginning. <laughs> it was it was more of like a, more of like a synthetic type, like kind of pop chorus. And Amir was the one who came in and was like, no, nah, you know, fuck that. Do something, you know, keep the song heavy. And that's when it all came together. And it's kind of like, I think when the album started like making more sense to us, because it was me and Mike in the studio just 12 hours a day. And, you know, we were just, whatever would come to mind, we would, we'd write and, and, you know, there was like no direction at first. And then finally, I think once we got asthmatic, you know, in the can, it was like, okay, here's where we need to go. And it kind of all started taking shape from there. So you wrote the album in the studio. You didn't go to the studio with these songs done? No, no, we, we wrote them in a rehearsal studio. Oh, okay. So it was like, we had, like I said, we had a, we had a little recording. It was before we got Pro Tools. So we had little like Roland almost like a old school four track but it was a, six, a digital 16 track and we just I had my V drums so I mean the demo sounded like shit so it was like a huge jump from when we actually recorded them but you know we we just getting ideas down on tape and, and we knew we had something there but yeah we spent a lot maybe six months writing that record yeah asthmatic being so aggressive I think is a, a big part of the album too the sequencing of this album is is pretty perfect as well because asthmatic you know just opens up there's no intro or anything it just starts going and it's just non-stop all the way through and then hide a callousness of course is another one that's just 
and aspirin for three minutes and then you kind of get a little bit of a break with synthetic and new disease and then it goes back in and cyanide's almost like the halfway point too which is interesting because it has that almost like interlude feel with the the drum track so i think that that's definitely important that asthmatic didn't have a poppy chorus because it is so impactful to start the record and then that that uh sequencing was very like thought out and especially like the spacing between the songs there's no spacing like asthmatic ends and hydrocalysis starts within a second and uh scott humphrey had a lot to do with that who mixed the record he just like i don't know he i think he really loved the record and and he took like special attention with it and me and mike were there every every day we'd go in and see what him and frank griner were the guys that mixed it and every day i was like wow i mean it's a very different sounding record it's not what we thought it was going to sound like but it just kind of worked for that for those songs so of course, Spine Shrink isn't exactly like a uh, guitar solo band or anything like that, but there is kind of this like spooky guitar lead in Malnur- Malnutrition. Do you remember coming up with that? Was that something mm-hmm. that Mike did? Yeah, I mean, Mike was always good with like layering. Um, it, it got even, he got even better with it like on the last two records, like Stanger, Denial, Septic, which no one heard. Um, he does a lot of crazy stuff where it's not exactly lead because I don't know while I we love metal but I was never into like you know I love Iron Maiden and, and Judas Priest and stuff like that but I, I never got into like that that whole Swedish style of metal where all these you know where the riffs all um, I, I can't explain it but we never got into that it was more there was more of like a like a punk rock vibe to us where it was like you said it's coming off the rails it's about to fall apart and you know we're just keeping it together and i like i like that chaos more than you know this this precise metal kind of stuff so you know mike with his layer in here he would add like textures but it wasn't exactly solos yeah i think that's really cool it almost has like this like typo negative kind of under layer to it without sounding like a typo negative song almost like you know just it's it sounds very spooky that's all i can, the only way i can describe it so this little weird spooky lead yeah. underneath the guitars and i think it's it's really neat especially because there's not a lead a lot of leads on the album it stands out even more because it's unique to that song in particular well i think there's one on seamless too but i mean johnny's screaming over it and falling apart so but we we actually toured with typo negative too and that was that was really cool yeah like seeing you know pete before he passed away and and those guys are really good to us and that was a fun tour like i didn't think we would go over well and with a a crowd like that but uh we did it was a good tour yeah what kind of tours did you do to support this i remember i think the tour i saw you on maybe right before or as the album was coming out was with head pe but did you do uh other tours with other roadrunner bands after that uh yeah we i mean we did head pe we did a lot of headlining on that tour uh we did fear factory typo negative Typo Negative was, I think, the first tour. We got our first tour bus on the Typo tour, and Jesus Christ, we were out of control. That was like that was like bigger than signing a record deal was getting a tour bus. So you know, we were just a bunch of young maniacs, and and it was great. But we we uh, I think the biggest tours we did. I mean, we did Ozfest. I, I believe I was on that. Yeah, we did Ozfest, and then we did a lot of touring with Disturbed, and a lot of tours with Mudbane. So, I mean, we, we've always been lucky to, and we got really good supporting uh, slots. So, I mean, the Disturbed stuff did a lot for us. 
Uh, Kevin Estrada, the A&R guy that ends up signing you back when you did Strictly Diesel, would you cons- he has kind of a reputation for being even more hands-on with his band, especially with his photography and even like production and things like that. Was he kind of like a fifth member of the band with Haida Callousness or was it not as involved as that? Oh, yeah, he was no matter like I think I think he ended up not being at Roadrunner because of us because he fought so hard for the band and and he always told us straight up you know what the deal was and and he was definitely you know to this day like I mentioned he's still one of my best friends and I I love the guy I mean he was really my wedding but yeah he he fought for us and and he was really like we were the first band he ever signed so like there was a special little bond between us but yeah, he was. He, Kevin was always great, and and Monty was great too. Monty always fought for us, and it was you know, we were pretty lucky to to get with Roadrunner. What is something on the album that, in retrospect, you would have done differently? I don't know if there's anything on that album. Maybe some of the poppies, like the like synthetic. Well, I think it's a great song. I, I wish it was a little more. Like that song in particular was a little more rough around the edges I, I think it's like the chorus is a little great for us but yeah that was it I'd, I'd make it you know maybe a little more chaotic and a little more crazy but I mean I look back on that record and I, I have that's the record that I have the least amount of uh, changes that I would make yeah synthetic it has that weird like almost DJ echo scratch in the verses that's from the Beastie Boys record oh is it yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's from Paul Revere. So like, I think it was just more of like, hey, that's kind of cool. I, you know, I love the Beastie Boys, so I was like, eh. But yeah, I mean, if I if I listen to it right now, I could probably tell you a hundred things that I would change. But, <laughs> you know, just looking back on it, yeah, I mean, it, it it did so well for us, and it, it kind of like it was a game changer. You know, it was like, wow, I think it put us up in kind of the big leagues for a minute. So it was, you know. I'm pretty happy with that record. Yeah, I mean, it sells hundreds of thousands of copies. You get a re-release of it because it does so well. Roadrunner's so happy about it that they do the the Digipack limited edition not long, maybe, what, a year or two after the original. What is your most fond memory of making this record or that period of time? And what's the legacy of Height of Callousness for you? I don't know. It was just, it was cool. I mean, we went up to Vancouver for six weeks. Like I said, we barely got in. But, uh, we had our, our, who was like another fifth member of the band, Chris Thompson, our guitar tech. And he was out there with us and my son was with us. So it was six weeks. We lived in this loft and it was just the most fun time of my life. Like I had all my best friends there. It was, it was just cool. And like to like see these songs that were like recorded very badly on a, on a 16 track, you know, with fake drums and, you know, shitty guitar sounds and to see it all come to life with, you know, with with garth there and, and garth was really he was really rough on us but he was also like it, it made it made the difference you know he pushed everyone to like their, the extreme so it, it was just i'd have to say that six weeks is probably the, the best time of my life backs against the wall spine shank came out triumphant with an album that would put them on the map 20 years later now that we know how it was made, how did we get to this point, and what are the aftermath effects of it now? There's only one person who could properly reflect on those things with us, and that is singer Johnny Santos. 
Johnny is as raw and open in this interview as he is in his songs as he tells us about what height of callousness means to him, what's been callousing him lately, and what to expect from both Spineshank and his other band Silent Civilian in the future. But we start with Roadrunner A&R representative and friend of the band, Kevin Estrada. We wouldn't have gotten as far as we, we did, I don't think, if it hadn't been for Kevin. He fucking fought for us. Like, we had that guy, like, that guy, like, because it wasn't, you know, when we would have to fight for certain things, um, he didn't he didn't treat us like he was part of the label. He treated himself like he was one of us. So he was like, the label's like, you're supposed to be on our side. He's like, fuck that. These are my guys, you know? Like, Kevin really fucking, he fought for us, man. He was badass. He was telling us this fucking story about how he was like in college or something and he got so fucking shithoused and he was at some party with all his fucking buddies and he got so drunk that he they took one of them disposable slippers that you get from the hotels and they rolled it up and he fucking smoked a slipper, dude. <laughs> Ask him. <laughs> True story. Well, that, I'm glad that yeah, that's a good story. That's not what the song's about, but that's what the song got named. <laughs> that's you know what I'm Okay. <laughs> But tell me about going from releasing Strictly Diesel to the point of recording Hide of Callousness. Tell me a little bit more about that kind of in-between period. It was a very fucking angry period for us. So we did, you know, we, we did Strictly Diesel. And I think the label kind of, when we got signed, I don't think that we were ready to be signed. I think there was, it was, there was so much going on uh, in that scene that these, because, you know, we were local, it was like, so like us and Static X, System of a Down, and 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 Snot. We were all local bands together. You know, we were none of us were signed. You know what I'm saying? And uh, you know, System and Snot and Static. You know, they had their shit together. They were good. I don't think that we were we were necessarily that ready at that point. You know, because I was still I was still a new singer. You know, because like, I originally was a guitar player in, in, in the band and then became the bass player and then became the bass player singer and then just became the singer you know oh, so wow. i yeah at that like you know th- at that point uh i i had uh i'd only been singing for a few years you know um because we started spine shake in 96 we had you know spine shake used to have two guitar players you know we had um not just mike we had another guy named marlo and, and before that our, we had a singer and we weren't called spine shake yet but we were called basic enigma we had a guy named art that sang for us and um you know, I, so by the time we got to, if you fast forward to uh, to 96, we did our first show, which was uh, January 11th, um, 1997, was was our very, was Spine Shake's very first show. Uh, and that was opening up for Cold Chamber of Fear Factory at the Whiskey, which immediately put us on the fucking map. Like we, our first fucking show, we're, we're opening up for two, you know, two big Roadrunner bands and sold out show. So, like, by the end of the night, we already had, like, 300 people on our mailing list. So, we were just, the next show we did, fucking lots of people there. And um, we were, you know, still writing music. And, and like, early, early Spine Shake wasn't what, it wasn't like, 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 a, a, a Strictly Diesel, the, that sound. Early Spine Shake, you know, if you ask Tommy, you know, um, it was very uh, industrial nail bombish almost. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were really influenced by, like, you know, fucking frontline assembly and fucking and and nail bomb and Godflesh and and then when we did we did um, detached, 
that's where the label was just like, we need you to write a record full of these because that's what was happening. Deftones was big, you know, so we basically, you know, we kind of rode that train because it was like, you know, we're a bunch of fucking poor kids on the streets of L.A. going to get a fucking record deal. Fuck it. You know, we're like, we're going to fucking, you know, do what we can. But hindsight being 2020, we just weren't ready to be that a, a band like that. So I would what I kind of think is that the first album that we did was very uh us it was like almost like uh, um grooming us you know like it was like they were grooming us for the job that we were already doing. So uh we did that record way too fast. Like we wrote the whole fucking thing in like fucking 2 months because out of all the ori- we scrapped all the original songs on that on that first album except for for uh stain and fucking uh mend detached i wrote i wrote that fucking song with an acoustic guitar in 10 minutes on my front porch like literally because i mean basically this the whole song is just one riff the entire way through it's just the way it opens up and everything you know? like literally I, I i wrote that song like i wrote i remember the day i wrote that song and it just kind of had that cool like california fucking you know new metal thing going on and shit by the time that record came out and you know, we broke our teeth on, on tours with, you know, fucking Fear Factory and fucking Biohazard and Sepultura. And, and that was all, you know, good experience. But I don't think the label was getting the results that they wanted. They put us here. They are a band that nobody fucking knows. And they put us out on a headlining tour with a band called Soak. All right. So um, John Moyer was the bass player at Soak, who is now in Disturbed. And Union Underground, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we're on this tour playing to, like, six people a night because nobody fucking knows who we are. We weren't we weren't hitting it radio, really, you know, like it wasn't. And then we were just fighting for every little thing. Like, we, you know, we knew what we wanted to do. And, you know, they were really pushing us for radio songs. And we weren't really felt we were a radio band at the time, you know? And then, you know, we wrote that fucking record... And it was just like synthetic right out of the fucking box, man. Just fucking catapulted us. And, you know, because if you, that record to me, is, the Heidekalis is probably, to me, is the most, most important record of Sly Shanks' career because we were really fucking pissed. Like, really fucking pissed off. I just remember everybody was just on edge. We were just fucking angry. And it really came through as far as the music was concerned, you know? And, uh, you know, Roadrunner got their, they got their radio songs. They got Synthetic, came out, and it fucking hit, and it hit hard. And then fucking New Disease just fucking, fucking see ya. Next thing you know, we're on fucking OzFest, and we're flying here. We're headlining our own fucking goddamn shows to thousands of people and shit, you know? And it was like, whoa, what just fucking happened? So here we went from fucking sleeping in vans, you know, and fucking eating fucking Top Ramen. To fucking, you know, riding on tour buses and sharing semi-trucks with System of a Down and shit. And um, the making of that record. Woo! Garth said that you and him specifically had a unique relationship for that record because he had to kind of push you a little bit to get those pissed off vocals. And to kind of get you a little bit focused, we'll say, for uh, where you needed to be to, to make this album what it is. Would you agree with that at the time in retrospect? Absolutely. I don't think I think that's the best way to put it, a unique relationship. Um, the thing about it was was 
see. Uh, at that point, I really didn't understand the type of money that was being spent on the band. You know, like I I never I didn't watch the finances. I didn't realize that. You know, we're spending hundreds of thousands of fucking dollars to make this fucking record. You know, like I had, you know, I was a fucking uh, a lead singer in a rock and roll band and I was only 22 fucking years old. You know, um, I was having the time of my life, which means I was also, you know, doing a lot of nefarious activities. You know, I was doing a lot of drugs, drinking a lot of booze, fucking a lot of chicks, disappearing for fucking days at a time, you know, and living that fucking, you know, that Hollywood life. It was like the first time in my life, like I was somebody and I was just soaking it all up, you know, and I was totally the asshole lead singer, you know, and I was, I was being that guy. Problem was, is there was a lot of money being spent and getting me to focus. It's like clapping with one hand, you know, like I would, you know, it's like, fuck man. So we did pre-production down in, you know, in, in California with a mirror from orgy we did all the pre-production with him and then uh the very end i think garth and dean came down for for a few and then it was up to fucking vancouver we went we, you know me and tommy partied a lot fuck you know you know tommy he finishes drums so fucking fast you know it's like tommy's done with drums in like a week you know i'm sitting there watching my best friend just get fucking you know having a great fucking time and i'm over here having to be in the, you know but you gotta work well, Garth fucking dropped the fucking hammer, man. I, I was a little upset with Garth back in the day because I felt like he was just a bully. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, man. And, and now that I look back on it, and especially that I've done a lot of production and I've worked with a lot of bands, man, fuck, I, I have nothing but fucking respect for him for fucking having to put up with me. You know, I don't think I could put up with me. <laughs> you know, back then anyways. And he did. He pushed me. He made me angry. He went out of his fucking way to piss me off. You know, and I would be like, this fucking negative reinforcement bullshit doesn't work with me. It's reverse psychology, blah, blah. And it pissed me off so much. And then I'd fucking drop the best fucking take of the fucking night. And then I'm like, it did fucking work. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Garth is the only person that's going to get this performance out of me. Like, oh, that's the best I can do. He's like, all right, you're done. I'm like, I'm not done. He's like, yeah, you're done. Go home. I'll see. You. I'll see you when you're ready to fucking. When when you learn how to sing, why don't you fucking come back? You know, shit like that. That would just be like, whoa, dude, I want to <laughs> fucking kill you. That's what it needed to be. It needed to be a violent record, and we achieved that by whatever means necessary. Garth, in the end, did his fucking job, and he did it well. This record sounds pissed. I mean, a big part of what makes this record so awesome is because your vocals sound terrifying most of the time. There's a lot of doubles on them too. And, you know, you just sound, the thing is, is that strictly diesel to height of callousness to me. And I don't think you disagree from what you've told me. It's such a huge gap. I mean, they're just two completely different sounds and bands. Yeah. Um, you know, Strictly Diesel always to me kind of sounded like a slightly heavier, like stabbing Westward kind of thing What you would do with your vocals. And then height of callousness is just this, semi truck that runs you over back and forth for a half an hour you know what i mean so a lot of these songs are angry both lyrically and sonically but are there any specifics that stick out that maybe you were writing about this period in your life about being angry about not uh, maybe delivering the way that you thought that first record was going to i think the the, the thing behind the high of is like we have just endured so much we've taken we had taken so much of a beating 
from the industry and from the press and from ourselves, you know, and just, we were really, we, a lot of, there was a huge part of us were, we were angry that we allowed ourselves to put a record out like that. We'd always, as, as kids, especially Tom and I, you know, beat the odds. We were never supposed to do anything with our life like this, you know? We, we were proving not just to ourselves, but we were proving to the fucking world that we were fucking capable of putting out a fucking good fucking record. And I think that, you know, the premise behind it is what made it a good record is because we were so angry and we were so, you know, just tired of taking the beat. And that's why, you know, the height of callousness, basically, you know, it was, it's just like, we were, we were definitely calloused, you know, like we, we just, every time we turned around, we're kid, just taking, taking beatings, you know, and taking shit. It took a toll on us. It really did. And it was like one of those things where it was almost like, we didn't know if we were going to even have a fucking another record. We're going to end up back on the fucking streets again, fucking, you know. Being one of those bands, because you know, at that time in Hollywood, there were so many bands that got signed but just fizzled right the fuck out, you know, one and done, and, and they were out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we were like, we were, we were terrified that we were going to be, you know, one of those bands, and and the world was going to, the world was going to win. We wanted to write a record that was going to beat your fucking ass from the very beginning to the very end, like literally. There's no room to breathe, like you, you know, like you get anxiety just listening to the fucking thing. You know what I'm saying? Cause literally like, you know, when you, when you really stop and think about it, what's the fucking, like the mellowest song in that whole record is probably new disease. And I mean, come on, it's not, it's still a pretty dark fucking song, you know, and it's got its moments. Every song we, we just wanted it, just an ass kicker. We had no idea what was coming next. You know, that record literally changed my life forever. That was a turning point in my life. Do you know that the, you're making something special, especially compared to Strictly Diesel? Like, there's not a synthetic on Strictly Diesel. You know what I mean? Like, when you're making this song, are you like, oh, this is about to be the one that takes us somewhere? Dude, the fucking craziest thing is, is songs that you think are going to be huge are never this, are sometimes the worst songs on the record. The be, the biggest songs that we've ever had wrote themselves. Like, I wrote New Disease in about fucking 10 minutes, too. Mike wrote the, Mike wrote the chorus riff, and then I wrote the verse riff and all the other fucking parts in it. You know, it's just... That song wrote itself. I, re I remember the day we wrote that fucking song. And it was like fucking, uh, uh, we were rehearsing in Azusa. We had a rehearsal spot in Azusa there. And we wrote that song in like fucking 15 minutes. The songs, you know, the songs that, they, that we write that we think, man, this is going to be a fucking big one. <laughs> Always the ones that fucking fail miserably. <laughs> so you, I've learned that, you know. I never get really attached to the idea of a certain song being you know that big and we just you know it's like we also learned not to spend three months working on a fucking song if it does if you have to force it anything that's ever been forced with us it, it if you have to force it it's not gonna happen the best things the best songs that we've ever written the best songs that i've ever written always write them like they just flow it just fucking happens and you just that's when the magic hits and there it is. Bam. And you got to realize, we, at that point in time, we had no idea that record was going to be such a success. Right. We had, You know, when we did High Castles, we had no fucking idea that that fucking record was going to do what it did. We had, we, we were not prepared for it. We definitely weren't. We did not see that coming. Like, shit literally changed for us overnight. Like, it was like, wow, this thing is just, it's just growing. It was like this fucking monster is just growing and growing and every week we're selling more records and we're getting more spins on the radio and, and TV and now we're on fucking you know 
Ozfest and we're on tour with Disturbed and we're on tour with Slipknot and Lincoln Park and fucking like you know it's like what the fuck is it? <laughs> slow down you know so it wasn't like you know we could consciously have saved anything for the next record we didn't <laughs> we didn't even know we didn't even know that was gonna happen like shit I remember the first day we finally got our first tour bus fuck what do you mean we don't have to drive it we don't have to sleep on the floor of a van anymore and freeze our balls off or and then that was it. That was, you know, like at that point, I can remember, um, you know, me and Tommy kind of had that whole like, like, uh, oh fuck, we're we're definitely bona fide rock stars now because we're on a tour bus. <laughs> like, like, never mind the fact that we're selling fucking, you know, twenty thousand fucking records a week, and we're fucking, you know, charting, you know, new diseases in top twenty at Modern Rock. You know, we just thought it was because we had a tour bus. <laughs> So, like, we were so, even at that point when that record came out, you know, we were so fucking green because, you know, you, you, Strictly Diesel came out in the, in I think it was uh, September of 98. So, it's almost the end of 98. You know, we toured that thing for, like, a fucking year. And then we came home and literally, like, we did not take a fucking break after that fucking, like, we we were going to get dropped. We thought we were going to get dropped from the label. We immediately fucking went to work on Hyde Calistus, and that record came out in 2000. So, you know, it was like, this shit, shit just happened like fucking nuts. And then when Hyde Calistus came out, we didn't, we toured for uh, uh, 17 months straight, I believe it was. Like, straight. No breaks. Like, we, I think I think we came home for like, it t- came home in, in 17 months, we came home like three days. You know, we were in Europe. I remember we, we did Europe, we did like fucking I think we did like fucking 36, 30, 35 or 36 shows in a row, not even a day off. Like we were fucking one of the, we pull started one of the hardest working bands, you know, like we were doing fucking like, like 300 shows in 365 days or something fucking ridiculous. You know, like we were fucking working. We became s- such a well-oiled machine with Hydecalysis that record taught us so much. So the album opens with Asthmatic, which of course has become one of the more iconic Spine Shank songs in general, mainly because it opens your most successful album of all time. But what is that song about? It's a, there's a lot of self-hate on that record. And I think that kind of goes goes along with that, that narrative, you know. Uh, Tom and I, um, you know, we, we both write lyrically. We write together. And uh, it's kind of weird because drummers don't usually write lyrics. But him and I were always on the same page. And it was it, it was a song about uh, self-destructive behavior, most definitely. It's like, I won't keep doing this to myself, but if it's the only way, <laughs> it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, whatever it takes, you know, to get the result. But that was definitely a lot of that record. A lot of the narrative to that record lyrically was definitely based on on just frustration and self-hate and, you know, just it, digging deep, you know, play God. Is, is literally about fucking record label. Uh, a lot of people don't know that one. But, I mean, it's not like I'm going to get dropped off a of Roadrunner anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some crazy days for ro- being, being on Roadrunner, man. We, that old fucking crew, the 2000s crew, fuck. In reference to the 2000s crew, I think a big reason why Height of Callousness, the 20th anniversary specifically, has gotten so much attention is because, you know, it's kind of become cyclical when new metal was happening in the 2000s, when High Calcis comes out, it's the biggest thing in the world. Then it goes through this phase where people 
don't like it. You know, they clown on it. And now it's come all the way back around where it's cool again. And not only that, I don't know how, you know, in touch you are with uh, with current bands. I know you do music still, so you might be very in touch. And this might be something that is old news to you. But a lot of bands have come out recently that when I hear them, I think that they sound like they're trying to sound like Spine Shank. And maybe they don't even know that that's what they're emulating. You know, so I'm not trying to disrespect them necessarily. But there's a band called Vane that's very popular now that sounds... Very spine shanky, like they heard. <laughs> I had a calluses. They're like, oh, we could try to do that. Uh, Candy, Code Orange is on Roadrunner. They're a big one. Okay. Yeah, there's um, a band I, somebody turned me on to the other day called Loathe that reminds me of like spine shank with Chino singing and shit, dude. It's weird, you know? It's like, yo, got fucking lumped to this whole new metal thing. And I'm like, well, what is a new metal band? Because I mean, if you're going to call us new metal, and then I thought about it and I was just like, you know, I don't give a fuck. Call, if you want to call us new metal, that's fine. You know what it is? Is you can't put a label on the genre of music because it's like if you took us and then took Slipknot and then took System of a Down, all considered new metal and Limp Biscuit, all considered new metal bands. Not a single band sounds anywhere near the fucking same. It's just you know I think for you know new metal is just a, a term for like no rules, and that that you know at that point in time. And I remember, I remember it becoming such a bad fucking thing to be, like I remember when new metal, new metal was just the whole that it was like ridiculed, like it was a fucking embarrassed, like that. Oh fuck, fuck new metal, you know this and that. The biggest fucking metal bands in the fucking world right now are new metal bands, Slipknot, fucking Corn, and fucking just you know like System of a Down, you know it's like. So you you guys are sitting there talking shit about new metal, but I saw your ass at that Slipknot show last week. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I just, yeah, you know, like, oh, God, you know, like Deftones, like, seriously, it's like, man, you know, fuck, Deftones is probably one of my favorite fucking bands ever. And, um, you know, they don't sound anything like fucking anybody else, but they're the new metal. I think it's kind of fucking ironic that new metal is coming back and i'm just seeing all these fucking guys that used to talk shit on it try and fucking jump back on that fucking train and i was just like uh -uh, i see you (laughs) you know it's like fuck dude it was a fucking awesome time for fucking metal man i don't give a fuck what anybody says i was there it was (laughs) rad (laughs) like it was fucking fun you know it was just like there were no fucking rules you didn't have to do fucking this you know you know, you could do whatever the fuck you wanted to do. You could sing, you could scream, you could do a guitar solo or, or not. You could make, you know, like you could do whatever the fuck you wanted to do. It was just a melting pot of like influences. And it was like so many different genres of music were just crossing over. Did we fucking, did, did we dress funny and shit like that? Yes, 20 years ago. Of course we did. 20 years before, <laughs> I, I, we were making fun of people 20 years before that. You know, it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so what? That's just, that. that's you know, that's the times, you know, fucking shit. Like, it's like, I'm sure people 20 years from now will be fucking laughing at what's happening now, you know? I it, I think it's really nice to see new metal come full circle. You know, I feel a certain amount of vindication, if you will. I was p- part of that movement. The fact that we put out Hide of Callousness at the height of that movement and the height of our fucking career, like, that's cool. That's a great feeling. Basically, if you were on OzFest 2001, you're cool as hell right now. You know what I mean? Exactly. That was the best OzFest ever, too. (laughs) And being a part of that fucking movement is pretty fucking cool, man. It's a good feeling. 
20 years ago, um, I was 25 years old and it was, you know, to, to look back on that time, it's like, man, I wish it would have lasted longer. And I decided that, you know, I was going to take a break from music. My, I had good, my life was fucking good. I had a small, you know, on a small motorcycle shop up here in Portland, Oregon, you know. And then one year turned into two years, turned into three. Now here we are fucking, you know, seven years later. And um, I'm just starting to fucking get that itch again. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I had some pretty traumatic things happen to me last year. I was engaged to be married and uh, my fiance at the time was pregnant and our son was born dead. It fucked me up, you know? You know, this is the first time that I've really talked about this, you know? And then two weeks after my son died, she left. I don't, I, you know, I'm not mad at her. She didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. I kind of went into a, a pretty dark place. And in my life, I've always had a... a Music is as as an outlet, as a way to channel this anger and this pain. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have it. So I was doing, I was getting myself into things that I shouldn't have been getting myself into, you know. And just when I, you know, and I was like, how do I stop this? How do I stop feeling this way? Like I'm waking up every day, and I just like, fuck, I'm still alive, you know. Like I, I lost everything, you know. I was just miserable, and I was sad, and I was angry, and I was depressed. And I hadn't been, I hadn't been home in in seven years, you know, walking into the rainbow, walking into the whiskey, walking into the Roxy. And everyone was just, I just nothing but fucking love. I haven't seen these people in seven years. And they were just like, Oh my God, Johnny, fuck. Oh my God. Whatever he wants. You know, it was just like a fucking, you know, like red carpet. Like, and I was like, fucking people remember me is, is exactly what I needed. Cause I think I was on the road to some pretty bad self-destructive shit. And it reminded me that I did something. It reminded me that I had an impact. So I came home and uh, I went out to the garage and I fucking knocked the dust off the guitar cases and I just started writing. And my father died three weeks ago. It's been a fucked up year, dude. And, you know, it's making, it's, it's making for a great record, though. There's going to be some uh, uh, really big announcements here coming soon by February that we're going to be able to at least just release a couple of tracks just to fucking, because I feel like, you know, the guy, we're like, that's, we owe them. And when we release those couple of tracks, we're also going to release a pretty big press. Uh, but, uh, you know, for now, if you, if, if people out there want to know what's going on with us, uh, we just started a brand new uh, silent civilian Instagram page, it's silent underscore civilian underscore official. Here's the thing. I'd totally be down to do another smile. I would, I would, and I'll put that out there. I'm not the one that's gonna that's holding that back. I'm not saying that there's gonna be another spine train record, but if the fucking planets align, I would be all about it. You know, one of the last things I will say about the Heidi Calisness is everybody that worked on that record, everybody that was a part of the it was everybody, you know, it wasn't just us. You know, Garth and 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 fucking Dean and fucking Chris Thompson and um, you know, there's so many you know, Kevin, like there's so many people that made that record happen the way it is. You can't, I don't feel like we can just give the band all the credit because there's a lot of people in our corner that fought for us to get, to be able to put out a record of that caliber. You know what I'm saying? 
and I, would, I just want to make sure that, that that's known out there. Um, you know, everybody that was involved with the making of that record has nothing but love and respect for me. You know, even though I have a hard time remembering that era of my life. Height of callousness, 20 years. Here's the 20 more of an album that meant a lot to me when it was released and hasn't missed a beat of its legendary status. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell me about it on Instagram at meetmeetpod or on Apple Podcasts with a five-star review. If you want to support the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash meetmeetpod and giving what you can. But no matter what, I'm grateful for these people I admire giving their time to talk about albums I love and for you joining me in it. We do it every Wednesday, so I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Neep. And yeah, that's the best I could come up with. Bye! This is Rick Jimenez of the Stiff Shots Podcast Network and host of Thrashers, Slashers, and The Road to WrestleMania, which airs every single Monday, where myself and a guest discuss a movie and an album of their choice and the WrestleMania of the same year. This week, I'm joined by Daggermouth guitar player and Canadian professional wrestler Kenny Lush to discuss the album 17 Years in the Making, Guns N' Roses' Chinese Democracy, the fourth and bloodiest installment of Rambo, and the final WWE match with Ric Flair at WrestleMania 24. And even before that, this Thursday, a bonus shoot crime episode focusing on the double murder-suicide of Chris Benoit of 2007 with guest true crime enthusiast Alyssa Meyer. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your Stiff Shots Podcast Network shows at and join the overly caffeinated fun with Thrasher Slashers on the road to WrestleMania.